0: This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. This episode is sponsored by Treliant. In this episode, Maria Davanzo, the Chief Product Officer at Treliant, returns to discuss how an investigation should be handled by the Chief Compliance Officer and the compliance function. We start at the beginning with an allegation, talk about bringing in outside counsel, what you want from outside counsel in terms of an investigation protocol and a report, and go through the very most difficult decision of whether or not to self-disclose an issue. It's a fascinating walk through the entire investigative process by a chief compliance officer who has been there. I know you'll enjoy it. With Maria Devonzo. Maria, first of all, welcome back.
1: Thanks so much for having me. In our,
0: last, in our last episode, we took a really a deep dive into whistleblower responses, triaging whistleblower complaints, or whistleblower information, what you would do as a CCO if information came into your office. I thought in this episode, we might take the next step, which is everything that we talked about last episode has happened. You are now in the possession of credible information that you believe warrants an investigation, And what do you do as the CEO after you've triaged it? Maybe I could just ask you to start there and uh, you pick up the phone and call outside counsel. Do you bring your team in? Do you, depending on the severity, what do you do?
1: Yeah, sure. So the key is what you just said, right? Depends on the severity of the investigation. But let's assume for purposes of this conversation that we're talking about a potential serious investigation matter, allegation that could have reputational or financial or legal impact on the organization. Okay, so with that, yes, I would would bring in outside counsel. I would confer with them, and I would lay out for them everything that we have, and I would work closely with them with regard to actually conducting the investigation. I would probably bring in the the regional compliance officer, assuming that it wasn't in the U.S., it was across the world, I'd bring in my regional person to help move it along for logistical reasons, right? Because if it's in another a country, you might have language issues, right? You also need to have access to the IT. So we need folks on the ground who can help us get set up with email. Because, of course, we're going to do some email review, right, to find out what's going on. So those would be the preliminary steps that I would take to get it started.
0: I think we may have touched on this topic in an earlier pod, but I want to expand a little bit. Did you have regular counsel that you work with when appropriate on these types of issues?
1: We did. Yes, we did.
0: And and, and what I'd like to ask you is what's the importance of having outside counsel that you trust, that you work with, that you feel is really top notch for a chief compliance officer?
1: Oh, it's incredibly important, right? So you need somebody that, that not only will understand the subject matter of whatever it is you're investigating, and obviously that's key, but you need somebody also who has some business acumen, right, and some com- commercial knowledge and experience, because you're going to be dealing internally with your business people, right? You're going to bring them in. They're the ones that are going to be paying the bill at the end of the day for the investigation for counsel. And so I would always want to have an outside counsel that under- understood that, right, and wasn't going to get in the way of, Um, working with the local business leaders so that the investigation could be as smooth as possible. So not only is it the subject matter expertise, but I guess what we would call, Tom, the soft skills, right? You need counsel that has those soft skills. And I also wanted counsel, I would use typically the same counsel if I could, because I want continuity, consistency, and also depending on the type of investigation you were doing, it could get it what could also become significant is an aggregation concept, right? So if you're in India and you're conducting an FCP investigation, FCPA investigation, and you it's unsubstantiated, and then in six months you find another one in China, and then you know you have another one in Brazil. I'd like to have the same counsel there so that at some point you need to start to talk about do we have a systemic issue here? And if you're using different lawyers in each of those regions and each of those investigations, they're not going to have that bigger picture to look to help you assess if there's an enterprise issue as opposed to some, just a local rogue actor.
0: What is the significance or the importance of an investigation plan that outside counsel might prepare for you? Is that something that you would request? And if so, would you review that? Would you take that up the chain and have it review it with others all the way up to the CEO?
1: Yeah, we would absolutely ask for an investigation plan. And the reason for that, there were multiple reasons for that. One, of course, was cost. I didn't want counsel coming in and making an assessment that they needed to look at every single piece of paper and talk to every single person in the organization. Now, if that ultimately became necessary, obviously we'd do it. But we wanted to have that contained in the beginning. And we also wanted to make sure that we all agreed on the scope with respect to who got involved internally what we were going to look at also for logistical reasons. I would work with the GC on that. We typically would not involve the CEO in the plan, the investigative plan. We might notify him if we had to talk to one of his senior lieutenants because we didn't want him to hear about the investigation from that individual. But he generally didn't have oversight over what the plan looked like. It was myself and the general counsel.
0: So how do you interact or work with your outside counsel investigative team during the investigation? Do they call you with updates? Do they provide reports? Back in the old days, did you actually meet with them face-to-face? How did how did you deal with that part or that phase of the investigation?
1: Yeah, it's just some combination of that. My My lawyers were in Chicago. I was in New York. So even before the pandemic, we did not meet in person. But we would have calls, and honestly, we would have calls— uh, regarding the status and planning, next steps, et cetera, before they would put anything in writing, right? Before they would send me an email, before they would send me a report, because we wanted to make sure that we were we were protecting the privilege and we didn't want to create a lot of documents unnecessarily from that regard. So it was a lot of conversation.
0: And then what did you want as the chief compliance officer in, in terms of, did you want documents? Did you want transcripts? Did you want notes? Did you, or did you want more of just a summary?
1: So I would get summaries of the interviews that they would conduct with the witnesses. I would get summaries of the relevant docu- documents that they had pulled together, summaries of their email review. And then if there was something that can, that was contained with any of those in any of those materials, I might actually ask for that source material to take a look at myself because I wanted to be able to see what they were seeing and just make an assessment on my own as to whether or not I agreed with their conclusion. But yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I would do that.
0: One of the questions I've always struggled with, both as the person receiving the information or report and the person doing the investigation is, what happens if you stumble upon potential other information, violations, or something that is more than a rabbit trail, but just something different? And as I said, I've struggled with that. At times I've said, no, I'm here to investigate one thing and one thing only. I'll report that and let somebody else make the decision. Other times I thought maybe I should nose around in this a little bit. Did you ever have that situation? And is there an answer?
1: Absolutely. And the short answer is no, I don't think there really is an answer. Because what we do in investigations is it's more art than science, right? And so it's going to depend a lot on the facts and circumstances that you find yourself in. Um, There were times when we would find additional information that, to your point, felt like more than just diving down a rabbit hole. And so we would have to expand the s- scope of the investigation, particularly if it was even tangentially related to that investigation. There were times other information would come up that really didn't sit within my world. It might have been an HR aspect, let's say. And so I would send that off to my HR colleagues and that I wouldn't touch. But yeah, there were plenty of times when we would have to, re- we would have to adjust the scope because- based on what we found.
0: So, as an investigation winds toward the end, did you as a CCO, were you required to report up the results of that investigation? Would it be the GC? Would it be the CEO? Could it be the board?
1: Yes. It it was funny. There were some investigations that we did that I worked very closely with the GC on and outside counsel. And the question always was when do you notify the CEO? When do you notify the board? And the answer to that is not a simple one. In fact, our outside counsel, who I respected greatly, w- was always finding himself in the position of our GC insisting that he be advised by our outside lawyers when that what that point was, and our outside lawyers were like, well, "I can't tell you that, right? Because it depends on what your culture is, what your what do you typically when do you typically report something to your CEO." So it got to the point where our GC actually asked me to draft a policy. On when we would bring in the CEO, when we would bring in the chair of the audit committee, and I really struggled, Tom, with pulling something together. I spent a lot of time on it. I pulled together lots of resources. I sent it to him and Jack. and ironically, he never finalized it. Which is not a surprise because you can't you can't really document something like that, right? So we would we would just trust our gut, right? A lot. And there were definitely matters that we ultimately brought in the CEO and the chair of the audit committee on and we updated them regularly. They wanted those updates regularly. And then the next question is, if you're in a public company in particular, when do you bring in the auditors, the external auditors? And we fortunately didn't have investigations that we thought got to that point. But that's then the next question. And I personally have not had experience with that. I
0: think, thankfully. I'm really getting the sense that at this level, there's a lot more art than science going on. Yes. And how would you suggest a person who's in the compliance profession really learn these things? Is it you have to do them to learn them? Is it, can someone sit down and maybe listen to yourself or some other chief compliance officer or former CEO talk about these things? How do you develop and even overlaid in the corporate world with all the politics every corporation has, (laughs) and they're all different, so you can't do anything but say they exist. How do you know, and you said it as artfully as I've heard it, you got to trust your gut. And is it in consultation with others? Is it talking to your outside counsel, talking to your GC? Is it something that at the end of the day, you have to make that call?
1: I found myself, I was fortunate because I grew up as a litigator, right? So I... Worked very closely with a partner early on in my career in litigation where we were defending IBM, and I literally learned at his knee. Okay, watched him do it, and then I took depositions and I cross-examined witnesses and all that good stuff. And so for me, that was super helpful when I got to the point where I was doing investigations as a CCO. What I did was I had a woman join my team who didn't have any of that experience. She was a law student that we took on work. She went to school at night, and I did the same thing with her. So. It's you have to watch it. You have to you learn by seeing it happen, and and then you do smaller investigations. You learn to trust your gut. It's that's super important, right? And at the end of the day, that's really what there is to it. You listen to other people do it, right? Whether it's podcasts, you hear me talking to other people that come on to your podcasts, attend webinars if you can. But the best way. To learn is to second share someone if you can. You're a litigator, you know what I mean. Second share somebody if you can, and then just do it yourself and and really trust your instincts.
0: I don't know if you ever had to present or even make the decision to self disclose, but if you, I've talked to a lot of people who have, and they say universally, it is the most difficult decision.
1: We've had. We did have those conversations, yes, with our council and our GC. It is one of the most difficult decisions, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Could you maybe walk us through the arguments that you would least consider back and forth to make that recommendation?
1: Yeah. Look, I alluded to it earlier. In my opinion, if you've determined that you have that systemic problem, right, within the organization, I think that leans heavily towards self-disclosure. In particular, if you have people that have reported the matter in, which is usually how it happens, because you got to think about, we have this whistleblower program, the SEC whistleblower program I'm talking about. And so people can go there and report to the SEC or the DOJ. And if you have a systemic problem, the last thing you want is for the DOJ to knock on your door and say, hey, one of your employees came to us and told us X, Y, and Z, why haven't you disclosed? In situations in which there was something that happened locally, where it was a minor financial impact, it was a one-off, in those situations, we would tend not, not to self-disclose, right? But it was difficult. And there were conversations in which our outside counsel, I think, was perhaps leaning in that direction and our GC wasn't having it. And, that's, and that time is also, it's part of the conflict of this chief compliance officer reporting up into the GC, which I know is a topic for a different day, but- here I found myself in this situation in which the GC was like, no way. And the council was like, let's maybe, let's talk about it. And I was you know, caught in the middle. So that was a, that was an interesting experience, I must say.
0: <laughs> That's a very judicious word to use, interesting. Uh, let me change the focus just a little bit. And during an investigation... Would you try to keep, if it came in through a whistleblower or other internal reporting, would you try to keep that person in the loop to the extent you could? If so, how would you do that? And I'm a big advocate of what I call the fair process doctrine, which essentially says if the process is fair, people will accept a result that perhaps they didn't want. Do you have any experience with that part of it? Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I would want the person that came forward, the whistleblower, so to speak, to be kept in the loop, the key is what you said, to the extent possible, right? You can't, you cannot share with them all of the minutiae of what's going on in the investigation. You do want to keep them informed that about the fact that you are conducting the investigation, you're making progress. At the end, you want to let them know that you've taken appropriate action. And those were the phrases I would use and my team would use, we've taken appropriate action in part because, as I said earlier, you run the risk that your employees internally who don't feel like anything is happening, there's no organizational justice, that they're going to go someplace else to get that justice and to see something happen. So you don't want them going outside of the organization if you can prevent it. And one of the ways to to keep that from happening is to keep them informed to the extent that you can. And I do agree with you, the fairness, right? If Even if they don't agree with the outcome so long as they believe that a reasonable, fair investigation was conducted, then, then they'll live with it.
0: Now let me switch over to either someone who's violated... Policy procedure, code of conduct, not to the level of an FCPA violation where you might have to self disclose and in turnover information, but really the decision to discipline. In another life, I was a labor arbitrator. So I have experience with union management contracts, and there's a pretty good body of work around what's required to terminate someone. Did you have that sort of internal process, or did you go through? that type of analysis, if you had to discipline someone, maybe up to termination as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we did not have anything that was documented, written down as far as what would that that look like, because every situation is different. But the way that I used to describe it internally when I was asked about how do we come up with discipline and what do we do, you know to me it was like a spectrum right it was from, from on one side it was perhaps you know, have a conversation with somebody and say hey verbal warning is what my hr colleagues would call it hey that wasn't the right thing to do bordered on a violation or it was a violation maybe it was minor all the way up to termination and or if the matter warranted it, reporting it to some criminal authority in connection with the behavior of that individual, right? And then there was everything in between. So yes, I was involved in those situations. And I would make recommendations about termination if the situation was sufficiently serious enough. And sometimes I was met with pushback from business folks because that person was a big revenue generator. And then I would have to talk about The risk to the organization and the enterprise and try to educate them about, look, in the long run, this could end badly for us. And so we need to take this bad actor out of of the organization. So, yeah, I had those conversations a lot.
0: The Department of Justice in the 2020 update to the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document said for the first time that the CEO is the bearer of institutional and institutional justice and institutional fairness for an organization. And I can't think of an area more ripe for that than discipline. You've talked about transparency, but one of the things I always try to emphasize is if you fire people outside the U.S. for cheating on their expense accounts, and the top producer in the United States does so, you have to fire him or her too. Did you ever have that situation of both institutional fairness that you've talked about, but also institutional justice as well?
1: Yes, absolutely. We used to have a, we had a compliance tracker, right, where I would manage all of the investigations that my team was doing around the world. And we kept it for every year that I was there. And one of the categories we had was discipline. What was the disciplinary action that was taken? And one of the reasons that we tracked that is exactly what you're talking about, because we wanted to make sure that folks who engaged in similar behavior, in situations that were similarly situated, for lack of a better word, were handled in the same way. In the same way, because otherwise, if you have disparate treatment, then, you know, forget it, you're going to have a riot on your hand because people find out, right? Sometimes you try to keep that quiet. Sometimes you'll publicize something that happened for the benefit of trying to prevent it from happening again and making sure people understand that company takes it seriously. Sometimes you won't, but people will find out. And if someone engaged in one bad act in the U.S. and, they, and somebody else in the U.K. and you didn't handle it the same way... Unless there were legal reasons, right, Tom? I mean, I've, sometimes employment laws in other jurisdictions aren't the same over here in the U.S., and so you have to wrangle with that as well. But generally speaking, yeah, you needed to apply your disciplinary approach equally.
0: So you also mentioned, and I don't want to pick up a little bit on the publicizing of disciplinary actions. When I first was confronted with that as a lawyer, I guess I was a general counsel back then, I said, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. But the DOJ says they want that. What is this one of those, you got to listen to your gut, art calls, or how would you think through publicizing a disciplinary action to the extent you can?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when I was in my former role, I there were, I was there such a long time. There were two GCs that I reported up to, right? And in the first half of my being there was one guy and we put out what we called like a like a blotter like a police blotter sort of thing we didn't necessarily name people but we would talk about incidents that had happened and how the company handled it right T- to prevent it there was serious credit card misuse i couldn't believe the things people would think that they could use the corporate credit card for somebody bought their neighbor a tractor. Really? What, how? In what world is that okay? Somebody else was buying fancy luxury goods. You know the stories. And so we would publicize that kind of thing. Not with their names necessarily. We didn't think we needed to do that. It was enough so that other employees saw that's how the company handled these issues. And so when they were faced with something like that, they they think twice. The sort of the second half of my being there was a different GC who had a very different approach, more like what you had said. It was like, we can't do that. We can't do that. And so we didn't do it. But I was always of the mind that so long as you're not violating anybody's privacy, et cetera, et cetera, and you withdrew the names and enough details so that people can identify it, that it was very beneficial to to get that out there to the organization so that it would act as a preventative measure, so
0: sort of. How would you suggest, either a young lawyer or if a compliance officer doesn't have a legal background, how would you suggest they learn to do investigations? You mentioned the second chair approach. Would you recommend that they actually go do an investigation with a more seasoned attorney and really sit there and take notes and learn all the spade work?
1: Yes, absolutely. And we had folks on our team who wanted to learn how to do investigations. They had no legal background at all, and I'm talking in addition to the woman that I referred to earlier, much younger analysts, and what I would do is I would literally have them get on the interview call and just listen, take notes, listen and take notes, and when they did that often enough, if something minor, a minor investigation came along that had to be looked into and handled, we would give it to them under the supervision of somebody more senior, and so that it was a low-risk situation if they made a mistake there was somebody there to sort of belt and suspenders for them, and they were learning. And so I I personally believe that is the best way to do
0: it. I'm pretty sure that you didn't have the following situation because you were at Treliant when the DOJ came out with this change. But starting in, I guess, when the Monaco memo was released, through the <laughs> January of this year, both Lisa Monaco, Deputy Attorney General, and Kenneth Polite talked about the need for speed and that they want double secret extra probationary cooperation, which pick up the phone and call us when you hear something. And to me, so first of all, there's really no definition of what this double secret extra yeah. special cooperation is, but how would you try to think through as a CCO meeting, whatever that requirement is yet still getting information from your outside counsel, considering it as with either a legal hat or a compliance hat, and trying to see how that information, whether it be documents or evidence from an interview, fits into a bigger picture.
1: Yeah, when I write all the Monaco, the Monaco memo and the police writings and speeches and what have you, my initial reaction was, now I know what you guys are trying to do here, but it's just not, it's just not practical. You can't you cannot necessarily go out immediately and just start self-reporting if you don't have enough information. Tom, it, we wouldn't even report to the audit committee unless we had what we believe to be credible evidence. We've done some initial inquiries. So report up to my audit committee. I'm certainly not running over to the DOJ to, can you hear me? Yes. Tom? Hello? Still good. Yeah, it's freezing on my end. Okay. All right. Okay. Ah. All right. Good. So you have my answer or do you need me to repeat it?
0: Let me set up the question again. Okay. So Maria, with this, what I'm going to call the need for speed, how would you think through meeting this new requirement from the DOJ and still being able to consider the information that's come in a reasoned approach?
1: I think it's very difficult and that was my Actually, when I read all the all the statements, etc. that came out, we didn't even report to our audit committee until we had done some initial inquiry and some some minimal investigation to make sure that what the allegation that came forward to us had some had some credibility to it. Obviously not fully substantiated, but some credibility. And so if I'm not going to my audit committee, I find it difficult to think I'm gonna run out to the DOJ with every little every little thing that's come across my desk. I don't I just don't think it's a practical approach.
0: Well, Maria, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I wanted to thank you again. I have learned a lot today, and I'm sure our listeners have too. I look forward to continuing this conversation.
1: Same here. Thank you so much for having me, Tom.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this special edition of the FCPA Compliance Report, which has been sponsored by Treliant. We've linked to Treliant in the show notes, as well as Maria's uh, LinkedIn profile, She is a great resource for you as a compliance professional. So if you have any questions, I would urge you to follow up uh, with Maria. You can reach her through LinkedIn. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.